welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Meg Durham, and I'm so glad that you're here for this important conversation. How would you describe your relationship with your body? And what are some of the stories you tell yourself about the food you eat? The relationship we have with our body and the food we eat impacts our lives in subtle and obvious ways each and every day. Today's guest, Dr. Stephanie DiManio, is going to help us understand this complex and nuanced topic. Stephanie is the manager of Butterfly Body Bright, the Butterfly Foundation's whole of primary school body image program. Stephanie has dedicated her career to understanding the development of body image in children and is passionate about providing educators and parents with the resources to promote positive body image in children. If this conversation raises any concerns for you or someone you love, please visit the Butterfly Foundation website or call the Butterfly Foundation helpline on 1800 334673. In this conversation, we discuss what is disordered eating? How does disordered eating differ from an eating disorder? The importance of our language and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Stephanie DiManio. Stephanie, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks for having me. Today we're going to be talking about disordered eating and how we can improve our relationship with eating and our bodies. Why do you think this is an important topic for educators to consider? The relationship that a person has with their body and eating, it's, it's pretty significant, it's pretty long-lasting, but it's also really complex. And so we know that this relationship starts forming pretty early on in life and it really sort of starts to solidify, I think, during those childhood and adolescent years. Schools and staff obviously play a really important role then in helping to foster those positive relationships with body, eating, movement, and that's because schools is where children are actually spending a lot of their time. So I think it's really important for schools and educators to be aware of the things that influence a child's relationship with their body and also what they can be doing in their everyday teaching of and interactions with students to support this in really positive ways. Yeah, as you say that, I think, gosh, it is a really big topic and it's a complex topic. You know, both of us have young children and you think about what you say and how you interact. And so this is why this conversation is so important. So can you give us an understanding of what is disordered eating? So disordered eating is really, it's often defined as a a disturbed or unhealthy eating pattern. And it usually occurs for the purpose of someone wanting to change their body size or weight. So it might look like things like restrictive dieting, compulsive eating, skipping meals, cutting out food groups, or using things like diet pills and supplements. But it can also extend into exercise. So over-exercising or using exercise as a way to change the way a body looks. And so as we're understanding disordered eating... And some information you sent to me ahead of time, as I was reading through it, I thought, gee, 
this sounds really familiar. These are the conversations that I hear in staff rooms time and time again. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had in a staff room with people talking about the next diet they're trying or the next program they've signed up for. And it's almost like we've normalized disordered eating. Is this true? Yeah, we sort of have to an extent. I mean, diet culture is just rife in our society. I think it's really hard to get away from that. And I think one of the sort of more modern challenges that we're facing at the moment is that a lot of that diet culture content is now being sold to us as wellness. So it's really tricky to sort of navigate that whole space. But I think what you were saying in terms of hearing it in the staff room, that's something that I heard a lot of when we were developing our primary school program, Butterfly Body Bright. What staff were saying was we need to you know, have resources for students and we need to have training for staff, but we also need something that's going to help us actually amongst the staff so that we're not hearing these triggering conversations in the staff room and we're not doing you know, weight loss challenges as a cohort and things like that. And so it was really important for us to kind of build that in and be like, how can I be a body bright colleague in what I'm doing? How can I support my colleagues as well as my students in this, you know, whole environment that is just filled with diet culture? Yes, it is. It feels like we're saturated in this conversation time and time again. So I'm curious to understand what's the difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder? It's a pretty fine line between disordered eating and an eating disorder. Disordered eating is one of the most significant risk factors for the development of an eating disorder. It might be seen as like a stepping stone, I guess, to an eating disorder, but they both cause significant mental, social and physical health problems. And I think it's important to acknowledge that it's complex. So everyone sort of presents along a spectrum or continuum of behaviours from like what would be considered healthy to disordered to then clinically significant. And so I think the distinction really lies in that an eating disorder is a clinically diagnosed mental illness. So there's a few types, each with their own diagnostic criteria, but they're typically identified by specific disturbed eating behaviours and a pattern of behaviours and cognitions that present for specific periods of time depending on the diagnosis. I think though what's important here is that when we're considering children or anyone really that we don't need to and we shouldn't wait until it's at the point of a clinically diagnosable eating disorder to intervene. You know an eating disorder doesn't necessarily look a certain way either so we can't just sort of tell that someone has one just by looking at them most of the time. So I think it's about the importance of picking up on some of those early signs and identifying symptoms, you know, early on. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way to look at it and thinking about that continuum. We don't actually know. We can't look at someone and think, oh, yep, this is where you are on that continuum. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Because everyone sort of sits along it and it can sort of vary. Like when we think about body image in particular, it's it's not fixed, you know, it's quite fluid and it can be different in different environments and at different points. You know, certainly the research shows that there's particular points in someone's life where they're at greater risk of body dissatisfaction or disordered eating behaviour, but it's quite fluid. Yeah, and I'm, gosh, I'm taking myself back to school days. I'm thinking the lead up to formals and the conversation around formals, it was a big topic about what you were eating and how your body was looking in the lead up to that big event. And I think we see a lot of that talking about, I guess, diet culture as well, is that it's like, oh, I'm just going to 
you know, go on this just before this formal or just before this function. And then it doesn't matter what happens after that, but I just have to look amazing for this event. But then what those behaviors and that thinking starts to put in place, I guess it's kind of like this negative cycle of then, okay, so when I want to change the way my body looks, this is what I'm going to do to it. And it's a disordered way of really thinking about it, but also not a helpful way to be treating your body. Yeah, gosh, I look back on it now, I think, oh, it felt so normal at the time because it almost felt like the whole year level was having the same conversation. And then it's interesting to note that some people then moved on from that and then some people maybe couldn't move on from that once the event was over. Yeah, and I think that's right. And, you know, we know that dieting is a big risk factor for an eating disorder but it doesn't mean that everybody that goes on a diet is going to develop an eating disorder. So there's a whole range and it's very complex in terms of what someone's risk factors are that get them to that point. And so I think there are those who can do that and switch it off and say, well, I'm done with that diet and I'm done with that. My formal's over, it's all done. And those that it really, I guess, starts a different path for them in terms of their relationship with their body and eating. You know, there's something as a teacher that I've come across and I did not know how to handle it. And it's when you start to notice one of your students is not eating. So what do we do? So I think it's really tricky as an educator because, you know, it's not your role to diagnose when something is going wrong with a child or, you know, they're sort of heading down a, a negative path. But you may be the first person to actually notice that they're skipping lunch, for example. Um, so at Butterfly, we've got a whole heap of resources to support staff in terms of understanding what their role in the process might be and the steps that they can take to support the student and get them support if it's needed. What are some common myths that you think some people need to have a better understanding about? There's two big myths that come to mind when thinking around bodies and eating and how we can promote, I guess, positive body image and that healthy relationship. The first is that body size is an indicator of health. So connected to that is this idea that thin is good and healthy and fat is bad and unhealthy and that if you're fat, then you should want to be thinner and that will make you healthier. So I think that's a pretty complex one. We know that size body size isn't the only determinant of health and isn't a very good indicator of health at all. We know that people can have a whole range of metabolically healthy and unhealthy characteristics at any body size. And I think what we want to be emphasizing is rather a focus on health promoting behaviors. So nutritious and regular eating, fun, regular physical activity, and anybody in any body size will benefit from those health promoting behaviors. And, you know, I find that I often talk to parents about this. So, you know, parents tend to be concerned if their child is in a larger body, they've got, you know, just concerns about their child's size. And what I often say is, well, if they're moving their body regularly enough and they're eating regularly and a range of foods, then their body is naturally going to be whatever size and shape it's meant to be. But unfortunately, we don't live in a society that easily accepts that because we're constantly bombarded with these societal ideals of the perfect body, which is then why people struggle if their body or their child's body doesn't fit these ideals. So I think that's important when sort of thinking about kind of de debunking that myth. But I think also that 
body size is determined by many factors. So we know genetics plays a big part. You know, we easily accept that genetics play a role in how tall we're going to be, but less so when it comes to body size. But then we know that our genetics then interact with our environment. So there's a host of factors that influence the size of someone's body, um, whether that's socioeconomic factors, education, food security, mental health, illness, disease, like all of these things can affect and influence a person's body size. It's a lot more complex than that simplified idea of, I think, energy in and energy out and that size equals health or is an indicator of health. So I think that's a big one that we see. I think the second myth is that promoting positive body image promotes higher weight or, you know, the term obesity. And I think this is a really important one because despite the popular belief that shaming someone about their weight or shape will lead them, will motivate them to make kind of healthy changes and lose weight, the research shows us quite the opposite. So the more dissatisfied a person is with their body, the more likely they are to engage in unhealthy behaviours. So they're more likely to engage in the disordered eating behaviours of restrictive dieting. So they're less likely to engage in physical activity for health purposes. They're more likely to engage in risky behaviours, for example. While a person who is satisfied with their body is more likely to engage in those health-promoting behaviours. So the regular eating of nutritious food, a range of foods, fun, regular physical activity. And so I think what this really suggests is that positive body image should be encouraged for all individuals, regardless of their size, shape or weight, because everybody deserves to be engaging in those health promoting behaviours. And it's those behaviours that are going to be more, I guess, indicative of health overall than just the size of a person's body. But it's complex. It is so complex. And it's so important that we stop to really think about it, to think about our biases when it comes to when we look at a shape or a size, and then think about we don't have that with height or eye colour or other things, and noticing the stories that we tell ourselves about other people and about us, and then also that fear of, well, if we're going to be embracing or be kind, well, that's a slippery slope. The floodgates are open now. And everyone's just not going to take care of themselves to really think about that. And it takes me back to myself and my own story. When it comes to body satisfaction, for a long time, I wasn't satisfied with my body. I had larger breasts than I wanted to have. Like it stopped me from doing physical activity, doing lots of different things. And it took me so much time. But I got to this point in my life where I wanted to have a breast reduction. And once I had the breast reduction, I felt like my life transformed. I felt so satisfied with my body in a way that it could do what I needed it to do because I was a physically active person and I felt so uncomfortable before the breast reduction. And then once I had the breast reduction, I felt like this freedom. Is there a place to be not satisfied with our body at times? Is it appropriate? Is there space for it? Like this is something that I think about every now and then. I think that there's a couple of things with that. I think that it's normal to feel a whole range of things about our bodies. And I think we have to accept that there are going to be times that we're not going to feel great about our body or that children aren't going to feel great about their body. I think where it starts to become, I guess, more problematic or a concern is when it starts to impact daily functioning or how someone sees themselves in the world. 
So I think it's normal for us to say, oh, I'm you know, not having a great body image day today as opposed to experiencing that as, you know, a lifelong thing of how they feel about themselves. And I think, you know, from what your experience was, that was, to me, sounds less about the physical appearance side of it, but it's the functionality. So it's like for you, it's like your body wasn't quite doing what you wanted it to do for you. So I think that that's different too. Yeah, and I think it's important to talk about. It's not something that I obviously talk about often, but I remember the reason that I had it done was because some other girls in my year level, once we finished school, had it done and I just saw the liberation for them because for the first time in their life they didn't have to worry about that. So it was very much more a practical thing getting through life. I'm a physically active person. I didn't want to have to have two bras on and blisters and all the things that comes along with that practicality. And also to give ourselves permission to really care for our bodies in a way that works for us and not to be ashamed of our bodies. Yeah, that's right. And I think in wanting to sort of foster that for the next generation is so important because I think they're bombarded with so many other sort of societal pressures than we ever face as children. And so wanting to create, I guess, that world or that path for them, that it's like, yeah, you might not feel great every day, but let's try to have more of the positive than the negative where we can. Yeah. And really embracing that and having these open conversations, because as you say, when we were at school, we didn't compare ourselves to the whole world, our age. It was only the people in our own year level. Now young people can compare themselves to literally girls their age all over the country. So when it comes to these topics, how young is it that we're actually impacted? Like when do we first start to notice these shifts in the way that we think? So what the research pretty consistently shows us is that from the age of three, children are starting to already get a pretty clear picture on thin being good and fat being bad. And what the research is showing is that they tend to attribute negative characteristics to larger figured bodies and more positive characteristics to thinner bodies. So it might be that, you know, a larger character is mean or doesn't have friends or is lazy, whereas a thin figure is clever and kind. And I think if we think about children's media, we can start to think of examples where we see those stereotypes being played out in the characters that children are exposed to. So when it comes to providing environments where young people can really thrive, where we as adults can thrive in our bodies, what's important to consider? So I think if we're talking about in school environments, having, I guess, a whole school approach can be beneficial. So how as a whole school environment will they work to foster a positive body image? So what will their policies look like? Will they have staff training to support staff? What do they offer to students to help them build a positive body image? I think broadly at a societal level, it's a bit like, well, how long is a piece of string? Because there is so much work to be done. There is, you know, we're we're up against a multi-billion dollar diet and fitness industry that tells us that we are not good enough the way we are no matter how we are. And those ideals are forever changing. And I think that that's really important to acknowledge when we're having conversations amongst adults as well as with young people, is that the societal appearance ideal, if we look at it over time, it's forever changing. But bodies cannot physically change 
that much. And so we need to, I guess, try to avoid striving for those ideals so that we can be happier in the way that we are. So I think a big part of then what we can be doing in all of those environments, whether that's school, home, broadly society, is trying to appreciate our bodies the way they are and celebrate who we are and not make our appearance the most important part of who we are. Yes, I was listening to a Glennon Doyle podcast not that long ago and she had this amazing line and she said, we've sort of been taught that for women in particular, our bodies are our masterpiece. And then she went on to say, what I am learning in her own recovery is that it's our life is our masterpiece. Our body is the brush. Yeah, I like that. Often we hear this saying of our body is our vehicle for life. And it is. It's the thing that gets us to the places that we need to be. And so we need to nurture it with a whole range of different things and we need to be kind to it but it's really complex in the world that we live in and I know as a parent it can be really hard to know what to say like I catch myself all the time like I'm not sure if that's the right thing to say have I set them up is it healthy foods unhealthy foods are they good they're bad what are some language that we can use that would be helpful even when we're talking with our colleagues what is can you give us some help and what you were just saying in terms of language it's so important so what we know is that when we apply moral values or labels to food, whether that's good or bad, healthy, unhealthy, clean or toxic, which is sort of, you know, a new thing that's coming up the ranks. But when we use that sort of language, what we then tend to see is that it can lead to feelings of guilt and shame when those bad or unhealthy foods are eaten. And that affects a person's healthy relationship with eating. As adults, I think it's really important to check in on our own attitudes and values around eating and body so that we can role model that in front of children. And one of the ways, I guess, to overcome the idea of good and bad and, and healthy and unhealthy, there's, I guess there's a couple of things. It's sort of looking at food more broadly and holistically. So, you know, exploring food through our senses and describing it in those ways rather than trying to put it into a category of whether it's beneficial or not beneficial for our body. But I think the other thing is in terms of how we speak broadly around what is healthy. And I think part of it is sort of rebranding what healthy means. So when we're thinking about food, it's like, well, food is fuel, it's nourishment, but it's also there for enjoyment. And I think we need to sort of move away from this notion that food is just there you know, that it's only beneficial if it's full of nutrients. And that's the only way that it can be healthy because then we forget about that really important part that enjoyment plays in having that healthy relationship with eating. I actually heard something the other day that I just thought was fantastic. It was no single food alone will make a person unhealthy. And so it was about encouraging, you know, variety and whatever that looks like for a person in terms of variety, it's so true that it's not just one single thing. And if we ever just ate, I often say this to my children, if we only ever ate just like one food, then we would miss out on a whole range of experiences with other food. But we also would lack nutrients. We would lack the enjoyment of variety and all the rest of it. You know, so it's like even if you pick, I don't know, a banana, for example, that it's like it's full of nutrients and great health benefits, you know, we're thinking about it from a nutrition perspective. But if all somebody ate was bananas, they'd probably get 
quite unwell. I mean, I'm not a dietitian, but <laughs> I'm assuming that they wouldn't feel great and they would sort of lack that enjoyment, positive relationship with food and eating if that's all they had. So I think it's about sort of trying, which it's hard to do in the world that we live in, but trying to sort of redefine what healthy actually means. Yes, and it sounds like really broadening our window of tolerance when it comes to food. I'm thinking about the emotional connection here, where if we only allow ourselves to feel certain emotions, we miss out on all the richness. We miss out on the texture and the flavor of life. And it sounds like we can do that with our food too. If we only allow ourselves certain things, we miss out maybe on that laughter and that social connection and the joy. And it's almost like we've put this moral layer on food. Like I'm a good person if I eat this particular food and you're a bad person if you eat that particular food. And that's diet culture coming through, really. Like that company's marketing to us that you need to cut these foods from your diet. And if you do that, you will be a better person. So it's really hard to sort of, I guess, disentangle that as adults when we've been exposed to that kind of messaging for such a long time. So I think my hope is that if we can start to shift that for the next generation, then they won't grow up with the same mindset that we all have. Yeah, and it takes so much work for people of our generation and particularly the older generations because they were really saturated in these ideas to do things differently, to literally transform our relationship with food and our body. So if an educator is listening to this and they're starting to think, yeah, my relationship with food and my body is probably not ideal, probably if you looked at the continuum, think it's quite disordered in the way that I have rules around it, I can be quite rigid. Where can we start with ourselves to improve this relationship? So I think part of it is being informed. So obviously through Butterfly Foundation, we've got lots of resources for people to find out more about what might be going on, but then also sort of reaching out for support. So we've got the Butterfly National Helpline. So if somebody is really having a hard time, it's free, it's confidential. So I would definitely recommend that. I think taking a step back from that, there's a lot of evidence that suggests increasing or enhancing our body appreciation and our self-compassion for ourselves is a great step forward to improving our relationship with our body. So if we can appreciate and be grateful for the things that our body allows us to do and we sort of start to shift that focus from our body is our display or our masterpiece, as you quoted earlier, to it's our vehicle. You know, it serves a purpose for us, a very important one, and we need to look after it in a very sort of, I guess, balanced kind of way. And so as you've had these conversations with educators across the country talking about these topics, what have you noticed that's shifted in them as they've been a part of the program and working with young people? What has shifted in the way that they see themselves? I think one of the biggest changes that I've seen has been in the way that staff talk about bodies and food. So after doing our Body Bright training in particular, one of the biggest things that they say that they want to change or that they will change following the training or that they recognize as needing to change is that language piece. And so I think as adults, whether you're an educator, a parent, anybody who has any contact with young people, 
it's really thinking about you're an important role model. And so the language that you use and the behaviors that you engage in are so important and so influential for that, the next generation. Gosh, imagine what is possible for our next generation if we were so much more open with our language, if we had this wider window of tolerance for bodies, for food, for nourishment, for connection. And that gets me really excited and really hopeful for our young people because of the work that people like you are doing in our school communities to really bring awareness to a topic that we just don't think about. Like so many conversations now I'm thinking, oh, that's probably not ideal and self-compassion to me, but now I know better, I can start to do better. Yeah, and it's about making changes if you need to be making changes, but it's doing it in a way that is sustainable, that it's something that you can maintain, that it's something that's going to bring you joy, that it's not something that has got strict, rigid rules and doesn't allow you to have that open and flexible relationship with eating and your body. I think that is such a beautiful distinction, thinking about it as a lifestyle change. If we're going to make changes, making lifestyle changes. And that's the same message that I share all the time when it comes to wellbeing. When I come back to the battery, sleep, move, nourish, rest, connect. It's not about for the next 30 days. It's not about this term. It's about setting yourself up for a lifelong happiness and well sense of feeling good and functioning well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's where we need to sort of broaden this definition of what we consider health to be and what healthy is. You know, when we speak to young people, they define healthy as being thin and fit and eating fruit and vegetables. And in fact, it's so much more than that. You know, you've just touched on that in terms of what that actually means for us um, and all the contributing factors to that. So it's tricky, but it's trying to broaden how we see health and what is healthy. So we've almost normalised dysfunctional behaviour to the point that we think, isn't that what everyone does? Like, isn't this normal? Yeah, and I think the challenge with it is that what was once weight loss diet is now being rebranded as wellness. And so it's totally understandable why we're being consumed by that because of course we all want to be well we all want to be looking after ourselves and we've got a multi-billion dollar industry that's telling us well this is how you can do that there's one question that has always played on my mind and it's about embracing your body loving your body like what happens on the days when you don't love your body and you don't want to embrace it like what else is there other than loving your body Mm, It's a great question because it's not easy to love our body. And at Butterfly, we've moved away from that idea of loving our body to, you know, it's not always easy to love our body, but we can be kind to it. So we can nourish it. We can nurture it. We can be kind to our body. Um, And that's where that body appreciation comes into it as well. Oh, and that's so beautiful. Also, when it comes to self-love, we don't have to think about self-love. We can think about, let's be kind. Let's just be kind and from that you never know what may grow. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And it's sort of that cycle, isn't it? That it's like the kinder you can be, the more positive you feel, which leads to more kindness. And, you know, so it's it's cyclical. It's this positive upward spiral of appreciating the incredible body that we have, the only body that we will get on this lifetime. 
That's right. Yep. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing in this space. And to wrap up this incredible conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Yeah, absolutely. I am inspired by young children and their positivity. I think just thinking about what we've just been talking about, I think young children are just sort of beaming and it's like I just want to be able to just capture them in that moment and foster that. And I think that that's largely what motivates me to do the work that I do so that we can change it for the next generation and how they see their bodies. But I'm also, if I'm allowed to have two, I'm also inspired by all the schools and the teachers and the parents who see positive body image as something that's important for us to foster in our young people and that they're taking the action to really help that happen. When life feels hard? I try to take one step at a time. An underrated skill is? Being authentic. I think we need more of it. And I am looking forward to? I'm looking forward to seeing long-term impact of Butterfly Body Bright and the impact that it might have on the children of today and how they will develop their body image and see themselves over time. And I guess seeing how schools and the whole sort of system might change over time and prioritise body image is something that's important and part of everyday life and seeing that as a priority for students. Stephanie, thank you so much for this meaningful work and thank you for being guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much for having me and especially having the opportunity to talk about such an important topic. I hope this conversation has inspired you to rethink the way that you relate to your body and the foods that you eat. To learn more about the Butterfly Foundation and the Butterfly Body Bright Body Image Program, see the show notes for more details. If you loved this episode, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening. Or reach out to me on Instagram or LinkedIn and let me know what resonated most with you. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs, or download my free five-step energy guide. A heads up, if you've been thinking about booking me to speak at your school, organisation or community event this year, make sure you reach out because my calendar is filling fast. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 83. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.